0: Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for a special release of what I'm calling Cram Session. I recently held a strategy debrief with a group of investors and entrepreneurs where we talked about the show and discussed what to start doing, what to stop doing, and what to continue doing. I received a tremendous amount of great feedback and heard a lot of nice words about the program. One of the things that was most surprising to me was that folks missed the key takeaway and tip review sessions. I only did one of these episodes back on episode 15, where I consolidated all the takeaways and tips from a group of previous episodes. At the time of release, I heard very little feedback and decided to discontinue doing it. However, many in the group expressed that it was one of their favorites, and it allowed them to refresh their knowledge on past topics. So in light of that, I've decided to begin releasing these cram sessions every so often per the feedback. I will try and keep these reasonable to consume from a timing standpoint, so we'll target to keep them right around 40 minutes. So please let me know what you think of the cram sessions going forward, and if the recaps are a nice refresher. With that, here's the first installment where we go all the way back to episode 11 and hear takeaways and tips from episodes, including investors, Gabriel Weinberg, Glenn Gottfried, Bill Payne, and Winblad, Aaron Griffith, and Troy Hennikoff. Let's kick off the session with a review from episode 11, The Number One Reason Startups Fail with Gabriel Weinberg. All right. Great content from Gabriel Weinberg. He and I have talked offline about his personal angel investment strategy, and I can't wait to have him on again to illustrate his approach and how he's been successful. But let's recap some key takeaways from today's interview. The first takeaway that I'd like to recap is on timing. Gabriel mentioned that many startups fail to address customer acquisition, channel, and positioning until after a product is built, yet this must start at the idea stage and be executed in parallel with product development. As we discussed on episode five with George Deeb, there's a big difference between having a product built and having product market fit. All right. The second takeaway, while really hard to do, is on the prioritization between product development and traction. Here, Gabriel advises that founders spend half of their time gaining customer traction, which is rarely the case. It's not intuitive to focus on customer acquisition prior to having a product to sell, And so many founders don't. And the ones that do may get a strange response from others who question why they're spending so much time on something that is less critical than the product. But the ability to drive sales and get traction, in Gabriel's opinion, is just as important as having something to sell. And as we covered in the tip on MVC versus MVP, a startup can explore, validate, and test customer acquisition well in advance of a product being released. All right, key takeaway number three is that startups often approach customer traction randomly without a strategic, systematic thought process. And typically, it's the easiest or the path of least resistance for the founder. Gabriel's approach, that he called bullseye, takes a thoughtful look at all potential channels and then allows the team to prioritize and test each. This more exhaustive approach makes the channel strategy much more intentional and will allow the startup to focus on the most critical customer acquisition channels while justifying their strategy to their team and investors. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. This week's tip is about the curse of knowledge, which simply is a cognitive bias that causes more informed individuals to find it difficult to think about problems from the perspective of others who may be less informed. Gabriel talked about how founders are often very biased to one particular channel that they have had success in. This can be problematic when an experienced founder may have entrenched ideas about who the customer is, what they value, where they prefer to buy, and how a product should be positioned in order to compel that purchase. And while it's good to have a hypothesis, in the world of startups, this hypothesis often is dynamic and constantly changing. And many of the best founders are those that are customer-obsessed, always trying to understand their unmet needs and behaviors. You've probably heard many companies talk about pivoting. We thought we could sell X to Y, and what we really found was that this whole other customer group, not previously considered, was in significant need of a slightly different version of X. There are unlimited ways in which a startup may pivot its product, target market, monetization strategy, or otherwise. And founders must listen to their customers in order to adapt. So when evaluating startups with a hypothesis alone, investors must guess whether the founder's preconceived biases will limit market traction, where if a startup has prioritized traction from the beginning, they can clearly articulate who the customer is, where they buy, and why they're compelled to purchase. If you were getting your investment dollars in, which scenario would you prefer? In the next segment, we review takeaways and tips from the episode on advising early stage startups with Glenn Gottfried. All right. Big thanks to Glenn for his thoughts on advising. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. The first takeaway is on advising early stage startups. If you don't have the necessary chops and expertise, you're doing yourself and the company a disservice. As an investor, consider your expertise, knowledge, and network before engaging as an advisor and rigorously evaluate yourself and ask if you're going to add value in the situation. And for the entrepreneur, if an investor is interested in becoming an advisor, they should be able to clearly articulate the value that they're bringing to the table. Do they have experience with exits? Is there deep sales and channel expertise in the vertical? Are they a CTO and or expert in software development? Can they connect you with customers? There are a number of strengths that should be considered. And even better, at times, investors can demonstrate their value add by taking some action even before a formal agreement is struck. This is a rare and unique scenario, but about eight months ago, I began working with a health and wellness fitness startup out of Boston. Originally, I was a huge fan of the idea, and the more I participated, the more opportunities I saw to help. For example, they did not have a presence in Chicago. And I thought they were missing out on a big market. So without much effort, I was able to help generate a user base here that's outgrown the original locations. Uh, They also did not have a software expert on the founding team. While I would never call myself an expert, uh, in my younger years, I learned to code in a number of languages. Recently, my brother and I invested in a software development company. And because I work in the startup industry, I happen to know a number of developers. So I was able to wireframe a solution for them and connect with developers to find the right fit for their budget and schedule. Now, I'm not suggesting that every investor take this active of a role, but if you have a value add, are a strong believer in the startup, and they're at an early enough stage where you can help in a meaningful way on either product or traction, then what better way to demonstrate your enthusiasm than taking some sort of action? All right, the second takeaway is on the advice that founders get from a range of sources. Entrepreneurs will get a number of polar opposite viewpoints from investors, advisors, or accelerator mentors. Glenn's position is that the entrepreneur should assess and evaluate these positions rather than immediately adopting one or getting stuck between multiple. We all have our unique experience base and biases, so ultimately it's up to the entrepreneur to process all these inputs and make what they think is the best decision in the best interest of the company. All right, the last thing I wanted to recap is related to distinguishing between employees and advisors. Now, while advisors will have a range of involvement and contribution, they should be thought of as facilitators, not role players. While I helped jumpstart traction in a market for a startup, that was a one-time event, not an ongoing activity. So the board and the founder of an early-stage company must be very thoughtful about the stage the company is at and if the requirements are best filled by doers or facilitators. Okay, let's close out with the tip of the week. Uh, This week's tip is titled The Bridge to Nowhere. We talked earlier about the rolling close or the cascading close. My assumption upon entering the industry was that all fundraisers would utilize escrow and a minimum amount of dollars would be required to trigger the round close and transfer the money over to the startup. However, to my surprise, there are a number of situations where this isn't the case and an escrow is not utilized. What this means is that startups are doing a rolling close during their fundraise. So while they may be raising a half million dollar round, they are collecting $10,000, $50,000, or $100,000 checks as they go. And many times it can take significantly longer to raise the money than expected. In other cases, a startup will fail to raise the total amount, and you'll hear these comments like, well, we decided to do a smaller round and raise more through our Series A next year. As an investor, one must be careful not to become a bridge financier, unless, of course, bridge financing is your strategy. And what I mean by a bridge is that you are providing capital that bridges or allows the startup to continue fundraising on the hope that they close the round. This is often considered one of the more risky types of capital because on top of all the other risk factors associated with startups, you are now adding the risk of their ability to fill the rest of the round. So as Glenn mentioned earlier, if an investor can't get escrow and is set on an investment, there should be a benefit to the first money in. Often I've seen startups around here set a date by which the investors get a larger discount on a convertible note. So if you get your money in by the end of next month, maybe you get a 25% discount instead of a 20% discount. If you aren't sure what caps and discounts are for convertible notes, we will be covering this in next week's episode all about the convertible note with Bill Payne. The real message here is that startups should create scarcity and incentives for investors to take action or pass. And as an investor, if you're not getting a benefit for first money in, then others likely aren't either. And you may just be funding a bridge to nowhere. Coming up are the takeaways and tips from the episode on the convertible note with Bill Payne. That will wrap up our discussion on convertible notes. I can't wait to have Bill back again to shed some light on one of the many topics he's written about. If you want to learn about angel investing, I can't urge you enough to go to the blog at billpain.com. Although my disclaimer is that every time I jump on there to learn something, it seems like I blink and it's eight hours later. So <laughs> <laughs> well, be thank ready. you very much. <laughs> so, thanks, thanks for having me today. Thanks so much, Bill. Appreciate it. All right, big thanks to Bill Payne for sharing his time with us. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. The first is on the major elements of a convertible note. There are a large number of provisions that can be included in a convertible note. Not as many as a term sheet, but still a number of terms. Some are very boilerplate in nature, while others are more significant in a negotiation. Let's walk through the six major elements of a convertible that were covered today. The first one is the discount. For taking on more risk than later investors, the early stage investors will often get a discount. The discount is a percentage that will be applied to the equity valuation at the subsequent fundraise. So assuming there's no cap, If an early stage investor enters a convertible note agreement with a 20% discount, and the later Series A fundraise comes in at a valuation of $5 million, that earlier investor gets his equity at a $4 million valuation, which is 20% or a $1 million reduction on the $5 million. This has been covered a few times before, namely on our valuation episode with Jeffrey Carter. But bear in mind, the investor wants to be at a lower valuation because then his or her dollars invested comprise a higher percentage of the valuation. So he is awarded more equity. All right. The second major element of the convertible note is the interest rate. So a convertible note will often include an interest rate that is capitalized, usually annually, into the note's principal. While most investors put less focus here, because ideally convertibles should be short term, they can have a material impact if the percentage is high and the time to close of the Series A is long. For example, a high interest rate around 15% that takes two years to trigger could, in theory, provide the early investor with 30% plus more investable dollars at the time of conversion. But you'll find that most investors focus on getting their value through the cap in the discount. On top of the questionable timing before a triggering, the interest on a convertible note is taxed, which makes the investor benefit more efficient to structure through other terms. All right, the next major element is the cap. The cap is a critical term that some entrepreneurs will fail to include, and most savvy angel investors will pass on an investment in the absence of a cap. As Bill explained, this is a proxy for the valuation and represents the maximum valuation that the early investors will receive for their money. So, disregarding the discount, if a Series A has the fortunate valuation of $8 million and there's a cap at $3 million, the early investors get their equity at 3. All right. The next major element is triggers. So Bill also mentioned that there can be multiple events that can cause this debt instrument to be converted into equity. The two most common of which are a subsequent fundraise, typically with a stipulated minimum, or a certain time period that once elapsed causes the trigger. There can also be a milestone of revenue or earnings for that startup that, if achieved, will cause the trigger to equity. Most companies raising convertible notes will not be ready for sale to a strategic, and while Bill did not favor an acquisition or change of control as a trigger, it often does function as a trigger, and as he stated, can be very bad for the investor. But it really depends on the terms. I've seen convertible notes that include a 2 times or 3 times liquidation preference with a sale to a strategic acquirer as a qualifying trigger. Remember that a convertible is often riskier and at a worse valuation than a price round, so the other terms like liquidation may be higher. I've also seen examples that have a contingent discount that escalates upon change of control. So maybe it's a note with a 25% discount and a $3 million cap with a contingency to double the discount in the event of a change of control. If the startup was purchased for $3 million during the notes term, the investors can convert immediately prior to the event and in this case would take a 50% discount on the valuation. So their money would get in at a $1.5 million valuation and has immediately doubled upon the transaction. All right. The next major element is timing. So recall that if no fundraise trigger occurs, then the convertible is paid back with interest at maturity. There are also cases where an agreement will be struck between startups and investors to convert the debt to equity at maturity with a valuation lower than the cap. Typically, if a startup is unable to raise a subsequent round, they may also not be able to service the debt. So it's better that they avoid paying it down and have it converted to equity. Bill also covered the nature of contingent discounts. For example, an investor may strike a deal for a convertible note at a discount of 10% that increases by 10% for every six months that elapsed between the origin date and the trigger. So if the convertible is being used as a bridge to a large Series A round, and the entrepreneur projects high confidence that it will be closed in six months to a year, then an investor may agree to the funding, but with these escalating contingencies, if the startup fails to follow through on their fundraise. If you listen to last week's episode with Glenn Gottfried, you probably have a sense for the contingent nature of terms. Although I took time to describe greater discounts being granted for an investor that gets their money in first on the previous episode, today Bill highlighted contingent discounts that escalate with an onus on the startup and their ability to reach a fundraise milestone. He also described the ability to use warrants in lieu of rolling discounts. All right, the last major element I want to talk about is the other category. So there are a number of other terms that should be included in a convertible note, maybe less critical than the above, but I'll mention them briefly. First, you can establish a ranking for the level of debt and, of course, if it's secured or unsecured. If there are other debt holders or potentially more debt holders in the future, your ranking, senior, junior, subordinated, will establish your position in the stack. It goes without saying that it is best for the investor to be senior where possible. And on the security side, most convertible notes will be secured against valuable assets. We discussed today both IP and large hardware assets that may be used to secure the debt. And recall that when a conversion event takes place, the lower of the discount or the cap will apply for the investor. Here are two examples that show when a cap would apply and when the discount would apply. In example number one you have a convertible with a cap of three million dollars and a discount of 20 percent the subsequent fundraise comes in at a 3.5 valuation the cap valuation once again is three million bucks and the discount valuation in this case would be 2.8 million dollars which is 3.5 minus the 0.7 and 0.7 is 20 percent of that three and a half million. So the discount applies in this case, and the early investors will convert to equity at a $2.8 million valuation. All right. Example two, we've got the same convertible with a cap of $3 million and a discount once again of 20%. The subsequent fundraise now comes in at a $7 million valuation. The cap valuation is $3 million the discount valuation would be 5.6. So now it's $7 million minus the $1.4 million. $1.4 calculated as 20% of the $7 million. So the cap applies in this case, and the early investors will convert to equity at a $3 million valuation. All right, the third and final takeaway is on Bill's point about not investing in service businesses. If you've followed startup investing, you're probably aware that SaaS or software as a service companies have been a hot category for startup investors. And this is because they have the ability to scale in a way that the traditional service model or a service agency cannot. Maybe down the road we can devote an episode to SaaS and what the key success drivers are for businesses with this model. But keep Bill's advice in mind if you come across businesses that are utilizing a difficult-to-scale service or easily replicated model where the service is not SaaS. All right, it's time for the tip of the week. You've probably noticed at times I use the tip of the week to elaborate on the topic. Other times it is not directly related and is more focused on general investing and selection philosophy. In short, if I feel like I have something to add and or supplement, then it will be topic related. And if I don't, then I will use the opportunity to address a more general learning on angel investing that I've had. Okay, so this week's tip is beware the convertible. Let's first touch on the advantages to using convertibles versus a price round from the seed investor standpoint. So the number one advantage is the bridge when a bridge is required in the fundraise. So the subsequent investor has been identified, but more time is needed to complete diligence and terms. At times, a startup may be out of cash and need some working capital in the interim before the deal closes. In this instance, they can be advantageous because investors get a discount on the valuation, the startup is able to keep the lights on, and the subsequent investor can focus on completing the true fundraise round. All right, the second major advantage for convertibles is on early stage deals. So they do have value for very early stage deals that are hard to price where maybe there's no product and limited to no market validation. All right, the third item is on cost. So convertibles are less costly from a legal standpoint. The contracts are much simpler and straightforward because you're essentially punting on terms and will inherit whatever terms are set during the subsequent round. The fourth item is on speed, so convertibles of course also make the negotiation and fundraising process quicker as there's less to haggle over. The fifth item is on a claim on assets. As discussed, debt is senior to equity, so if the company has some tangible assets, such as patents, then the convertible debt investors can receive these or secure the debt against them in the case that the startup fails. All right. And then the last major advantage is on anti-dilution. Implicit in any convertible is a full ratchet. Recall from our episode on the term sheet with Brad Feld, we discussed full ratchets, which are an anti-dilution provision that secures an investor's equity position in a down round. So if a startup raises money at a lower valuation than previous, the early investors get their stake at the lower valuation. Because this is a convertible, the investors may even apply their discount in the event of a down round. On the whole, I would expect these situations are rare. An early stage company that uses a convertible and cannot raise at a better valuation has typically experienced challenges and often cannot raise at all. However, let's say the startup does well, but capital markets dry up. This could lead to a downround and a convertible provides that downside protection. This may seem counterintuitive. Remember the discussion I had with Jeffrey Carter in our episode on valuation. As Jeff articulated, the investor is almost rooting against the success of the startup because that is the only scenario where they get a good deal. When the startup does well, then the cap often applies and the investor got a bad deal because they paid too high of a valuation for a seed stage investment. And that segues into our disadvantages. Number one is valuation. Bill explained that if a cap on valuation is equivalent or less than what an equity round valuation would be set at, then he believes that it's a fine instrument to use. But he's never seen a case where the convertible cap was lower or equal to the seed stage valuation, which is around $2.5 million. So if the company does well and raises a subsequent round at a higher valuation, then the seed investors got a bad deal because they should have received equity for a $2.5 million valuation, for example. But with the standard cap being higher than the standard equity valuation, maybe it was 3 or $4 million. And the seed investors receive less equity for their money upon conversion. All right, the number two disadvantage is liquidation preference. We talked a little earlier about liquidation preferences for events that happen prior to a subsequent fundraise. We did not, however, talk about their effects in the event of a subsequent fundraise. Mark Schuster cautions that another hazard of the convertible is that seed investors get a multiplier on their liquidation preference. So very simply, if a seed investor gets in at a $3 million post money and the A investors get in at a $12 million post money, The seed investors are issued shares at the A round, post-money valuation, and thus the total number of shares issued are 4x higher. While I understand his point, and I encourage you to read the article on the subject, I do not agree with him here. This may be a disadvantage in a way to the Series A or B venture capitalist, but it's table stakes for the seed investor and the startup. Let me explain. When evaluating a convertible, I think you need to compare it against doing a traditional priced round at the seed stage. If the seed investors in this example had done a priced round at $3 million, then their liquidation preference for the percentage of ownership is exactly the same as if they do a convertible. I view this more as a watch out for seed investors that use someone else's convertible note template that somehow tries to separate classes of preferred and common stock that one will receive upon conversion. All right, the third major disadvantage is struck provisions. While I have not experienced this myself, we have discussed before on the podcast that really aggressive investor terms can limit a startup's ability to fundraise. At times, a VC may require an aggressive term to be struck or they will not proceed with a Series A. I have heard from others that these terms can be removed in the case of a convertible, whereas it wouldn't happen in a price round. This is because the convertible depends on a future event and the party with the most power at that future event can exert it how they see fit. For example, an early stage investor that enters a price round at a $2 million valuation gets their equity at that valuation. It belongs to them and they're not giving it back and they may even maintain it through pro rata. That same investor, let's say, has negotiated a convertible with a $5 million cap and a 20% discount that escalates 20% every six months until the Series A close. If the startup takes off, but it takes 18 months for that subsequent close, this investor group is now sitting on an 80% discount. Assuming the VC establishes a valuation at $10 million, they may threaten to walk if the seed investors don't adjust down that discount. All right. The number four disadvantage is preference. Again, this is more of a watch out as opposed to a disadvantage, but as an investor, make sure that your note is a convertible preferred. This just means that upon conversion, the investor is granted preferred stock instead of common. This is the standard and we have talked about preference in the past, so we won't recap it here, but it should be a requirement for any investor and could be a major oversight if not accounted for in the terms. Okay, and the fifth and final issue is pro rata. So another weakness of the convertible can be pro rata, which is not always stipulated in the convertible. We talked about the importance of pro rata on prior episodes with Brad Feld and part two with Jeffrey Carter. Pro rata is not automatically granted to convertible note holders. It must be specified. I was recently engaged in a series of tweets with Dave McClure and others where he cited his frustration with VCs that were not extending pro rata to him for convertible note agreements where it wasn't specified. His message was, we will remember and may not work with you again. Dave and 500 startups have a lot of credibility that I'd imagine many VCs heed. However, Even in his case, and certainly in my case, this will not be extended if I do not have the right written in. All right, to wrap up our discussion on convertible notes, some investors love them, some investors hate them. Regardless, there is a place for the convertible, and it's more important that seed investors and startups know why, when, and how to use them. Otherwise, like most things in this industry, it can be a bad outcome for both. Okay, if you've been listening to episodes and aren't clear on what we mean by seed series A or series B, on next week's episode, we will be addressing the stages of financing with Ann Winblad, and we'll fill in the gaps therein. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com. Forward slash investors. In this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Up next, we have the takeaways and tips from the episode, The Stages of Fundraising with Ann Winblad. Big thanks again to Ann for joining us on the show. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. So key takeaway number one, the expectation with the seed round is that the company will get a product that is demonstrable and at least shown to a representative set of the market that they're going to approach. Seed is often done via unpriced rounds as we discussed last week with Bill Payne on convertible notes. Remember that these funding instruments allow the investor to convert to equity based on the raise at the subsequent A round. And also mention that the standard seed round raise is 500k and if a valuation is established, it is often under $3 million. An A round raise is $3 million typically and the valuation is often under 10 million. And she also mentioned that the typical software A-Round is called a four-on-four, which means that the pre-money valuation is $4 million, the raise is $4 million, so that would put the post-money valuation at $8 million. And remember that A-Round investors are often the first institutional money in and are very involved in many of the early-stage activity. They help challenge and test assumptions such as value proposition, target market, and pricing. They assist with fundraising, networking, and HR and the regular activity is much different for the A investors than the scaling focus of later stage investors. And remember that the B round has no typical fundraise size or valuation. It really depends on how far you've gone and how much traction you have. All right, takeaway number two, we often think about angels and VCs, but there are also corporate investors that are increasingly becoming active. And the importance of choosing strong Series A and B venture capitalists is important here because they are the entities with not only the network of corporate partners, but also the credibility with those partners. All right, and then the final takeaway is on key metrics and assumptions to be vetted by the time you get to a B round. And mentioned a number of questions, including what is customer retention? Can I upsell software to these customers? Can I hire more salespeople and proportionally get more customers? What are my KPIs? What is the cost of customer acquisition or the CAC CAC, ratio? What is the churn ratio of my customers? Are you delivering extraordinary value to customers and do you know how to reach them, effectively close the sale, retain them, and do this over and over again? Okay, it's time for the tip of the week. And this week's tip is the one question customers should ask. We talked about proof points and investing in companies with an absence of proof points. Ann talked about the days when seed investing was less prevalent and she often had to make earlier stage investments. They would often talk with customers and ask if they would purchase a product. And this led to a lot of ifs and mites and questions about the viability of the market for a product. Before I left my previous employer, my goal was to get firsthand experience leading innovation. Prior to that, I had operated in strategic and M&A roles at a 30,000 feet level, where I learned a tremendous amount but had no firsthand experience with the companies I was advising. So I was able to work out a transfer to a division in which I could lead breakthrough innovation. And while the technology that we were developing was truly disruptive, the customer-facing product was ill-defined and positioned for that target market. Essentially, the customer didn't want it. Through many product iterations and customer testing around North America, Europe, and South America, we were met with confused looks and furrowed brows. It was really kind of distressing because we had this revolutionary technology that was in an embodiment that no one seemed to want. But slowly, the product user experience and messaging evolved and there was some interest we would ask the standard purchase intent question, how likely is it that you would buy the product at X price? With the goal of getting to greater than 25% of the target customers responding, definitely buy. Yet the response from customers began to change. As we better tailored the solution for the target market, we no longer had to ask the question. Customers began asking me intently, how do I get one? When will it be available? And even can you leave the prototype here? There was even a guy in Italy that didn't want to let me leave with the device. Uh, But at the least, I got a strong intent to purchase. So the reason I tell this story is because of two major learnings. Number one, ask the question, is a demonstration required in order to sell or can the messaging alone compel a purchase? In the case of my example, the customers who use the product became evangelists. But we recognize that in order to scale, not every customer is going to have a chance to use the product before they buy. So the messaging and positioning must be crafted in a way that drives sales conversion. And the second major learning was that what seems like a subtle difference in customer response is actually very meaningful. As an investor, you should be talking with customers and those in the target market before you make an investment. Have you ever been in a situation where you told somebody about an app, for example, and they said it was cool or interesting, but they never asked you for the name of the app or got out their phone and downloaded? The unmet need in the market should be so compelling that customers ask for it. And when they do, they become an extension of your sales force that you don't need to pay a salary or a commission. These evangelists will refer you for free. In the past, I've heard this discrepancy referred to as the vitamin pill versus the painkiller. Would you rather knock on doors trying to sell the vitamin pill or just answer the phone as customers call you for the painkiller? Ultimately, in a world where cash is scarce and traction is everything, find out if your startup's customers are asking to buy it now or saying maybe later. The next takeaways and tips segment is from our episode called Venture in the Media, with Aaron Griffith. Special thanks to Aaron Griffith for joining us on the show. It was a real pleasure to have her on the program. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. Uh, The first one I wanted to recap was on democratization of the media and shock headlines. So Aaron talked about how we are no longer in a media landscape with just the traditional journalists and players. There are now many practitioners that are active bloggers, providing perspective on trends and creating content to educate other investors as well as startups. She mentioned a few of the more famous ones, including Mark Suster, Fred Wilson, and Ben Horowitz. On this point, there were two main messages that emerged from our conversation. Number one was pick some good sources and use them to help filter. The reality is that there's just too much content to read on a daily basis. So subscribing to the newsletter of great content creators and aggregators, like those that Aaron mentioned, will eliminate a great deal of the noise. And the reason why you'll often hear to pick a handful is because you could fall into the trap like I did, where I've signed up for 40 newsletters and I can't even manage my inbox. So whether it's the newsletter or your Twitter stream, remember to edit. And a quick tip here is that Twitter allows the creation of lists. It's very easy to organize and review your stream around topics. For example, I may have a list on venture, uh, one with just my friends, one on Chicago, and maybe another one on sports. Okay, the second major message here related to the increasing number of shock headlines. If you take a step back and consider, have you ever clicked on a really compelling link or headline only to read the article and be disappointed? Unfortunately, there are not only bad content producers, but also those that are great at getting people to read the bad content with a provocative headline. So again, it can help save time to proactively curate your media diet instead of reactively reading the catchiest headlines. Okay. Takeaway number two is on signals. So Aaron mentioned that when quickly evaluating a large number of startups that she could write about, she looks for some signals, including who is this person? Why would they be successful? How's their idea different? What's compelling about it? How can I get excited about it? And why should other people be excited about it? Any startup that is looking for good press or even looking to raise capital should evaluate themselves against these questions. All right. The third and final takeaway is on social responsibility. I wanted to mention this takeaway related to social responsibility. It's unclear how much VCs have thought about or how much they're concerned about the ramifications of companies that they invest in that are potentially making the world a worse place. So there are venture firms and accelerators that focus just on some sort of social enterprise, but that's not what came up today. Erin was curious about established firms that don't have a focus on social responsibility and if they are purely making decisions based on potential return on investment or if they are concerned about the net negative impact on society at large. And finally, she pointed out the disproportionate balance of women in venture and private equity relative to other fields as an issue that needs to be addressed. I recently had Ann Winblad as a guest on the program and considered asking Ann about this issue. However, I decided not to because I wanted to approach the subject like any other. She's a venture professional here to talk about a venture subject, not to make a statement about how her gender is vastly underrepresented in the field. But in retrospect, I should have addressed it. While I asked her to interview because of her chops as a practitioner and not because of her gender, it is an issue in this industry and one that we should be considerate of and celebrate those like Ann and Aaron who have done an incredible job representing women and showing all of us how much better off we'd be with more women like them in venture. All right, it's time for the tip of the week. This week's tip is called follow the herd or create your own. Throughout the conversation, this theme of finding startups early kept coming up. While there are many angels and early stage investors that tend to follow the herd or they hear about the hottest startups and try to participate in the investment round, this can often have an adverse effect on a deal. For one, the valuation will often inflate. Aaron talked about the great number of investors at the early stage and how this may be pushing valuations up. While on the surface, this appears as a win for the startup and a loss for the investor, it doesn't always play out that way. Once a higher valuation is set, the bar is raised and milestones are more aggressive. If the startup experiences challenges, this can cause difficulty in raising the next round. So we had talked today about how people like Charlie O'Donnell, who recommended Aaron for this interview back in episode six, tries to meet with startup founders before they even have a startup. Aaron also gave an overview of the article that she wrote about Mattermark and Bloomberg Beta's effort to identify potential founders before they have embarked on their startup journey. And she herself will use her network of practitioners, industry players and founders to try and identify very early startups that are still very much under the radar. The reason I'm calling attention to this is because there seems to be a theme amongst well-respected seed focused professionals that they want to plug in and find out about these great new startups before the rest of the world does. This doesn't mean that each of the investors are making bets at the idea stage. Rather, it means they are meeting with these companies before they have decided to do a formal fundraise. This is an important distinction because a startup could be at the idea stage, have built a product, have achieved product market fit, or maybe even they have significant traction in a vertical before ever considering a fundraise. The message isn't to invest earlier, it's to meet startups earlier. Assuming you're a fair and honest investor with sound knowledge and network, it's a great opportunity to get some capital in and help keep the startup focused on growing the business instead of the poorly structured perpetual fundraise. And our last takeaway and tip segment will be on the episode called The Accelerator with Troy Henikoff. That concludes my interview with Troy Hanakoff. I very much appreciate his time and feel fortunate to be working with some of his impressive companies. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. The first one is an overview of the accelerator. So for the first takeaway, I wanted to recap both the characteristics and advantages of accelerators. So first, the characteristics. Accelerators are a program that startups apply to for admission that lasts for a fixed time period. In this case, it was a 90-day intensive cohort. And admission to the top accelerators is often an order of magnitude more selective than the top business schools. For Techstars Chicago, they received thousands of applications and admitted 10 startups. Seven out of 10 companies that were admitted were pre-revenue. Five custom KPIs or objectives were set for each startup in the cohort. And in the case of Techstars, not all accelerators... The first month is an intensive time of meetings with experienced mentors that challenge and help the startup identify issues and opportunities with their product, business model, and or go-to-market strategy. And finally, it all culminates in an event called Demo Day, where the startup founders get on stage and pitch their startups for investment. All right, and then the advantages to startups participating in an accelerator. First is high-level frequent mentorship. Next is Seed Capital. They also offer office space, legal, accounting, payment processing, hosting, and even some travel rewards. If you'd like to see more specifics on the perks made available to startups participating in Techstars specifically, I will include a link in the show notes. All right, the second major takeaway is on getting in. So I wanted to recap this process of getting into accelerators. So Troy mentioned that they look for strong teams, Tenacious entrepreneurs that are also coachable, recall that he mentioned Steve Jobs would not likely be a good fit for tech stars, customer engagement, and product market fit. And when I asked what makes a startup a good fit for admission, Troy explained that those startups that need to iterate on the product, the business model, the go-to-market strategy, and those that need to improve how they talk about their product and business make a great fit for his accelerator. Alright, the last major takeaway is on differentiation. So I wanted to recap how these accelerators differ from one another. Troy mentioned the following items that distinguished accelerators. Number one is co-location of the cohort companies and accelerator leadership and mentors. Not all accelerators stress this co-location. Number two is the level of mentorship. Number three is selectivity. Number four is access to resources. And number five is general versus a specialty area or focus area. So accelerators may focus by vertical, horizontal, geographic, uh, their mandate or mission. So Troy had mentioned Impact Engine, who has a social mandate in addition to the more common mandates of accelerators. And finally, the business type. If you are a startup or a startup investor, It is a great idea to review your focus areas and identify accelerators that share this focus. I think it's safe to say that both startups and investors have much to gain from acceleration. And that leads to our tip of the week, which is accelerate yourself. I really expect the transformative ability that accelerators have on startups. But during the interview, I could not stop thinking about how difficult it is for startups to get into the top accelerators. A very small fraction of the startups in your ecosystem will ever have the opportunity to participate in one of these top tier programs. But that doesn't mean that the startups can't leverage many of the same benefits themselves. Troy talked about a fixed time period, setting KPIs, meeting with mentors, getting seed capital, and co-locating with other startups. With a strong advisor or early board member, startups can set goals or metrics, pick a date by which they launch a formal fundraise, reach out to or co-locate with similar startups, and connect with successful founders that have dealt with common challenges. And when it comes to mentoring, I have found more often than not, successful entrepreneurs are happy to spend their time and share their thoughts with early stage founders. As a startup, if you're coachable and willing to pivot to succeed, these mentors may even end up investing. While the breadth and depth of resources through these top-tier accelerators cannot be replicated, the vast majority of startups will never have the opportunity to participate in one. If you are an investor working with a promising startup, help them build their network. Encourage them to reach out to others. Set goals and have a review cycle where they are assessed. If one is resourceful, hardworking, and resilient enough to build a successful company, why not accelerate their self? That will conclude this cram session installment. Jump on the TFR website at fullratchet.net today to sign up for the newsletter and receive all the info on special content, episodes, and the best articles written on startups every week. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you next time.